Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Show. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, and the doctor is in the house, Mr. Mike Broman. Excited to bring you this second episode of the show, and uh, maybe we'll be maybe we'll be twice as good this time around, Mike. But we're going to talk today to Josh Honeycutt. He's an outdoor writer. We're going to be talking tales of big bucks, and so we'll get into that here in a few minutes. But uh, this is a show about telling deer stories, and Josh is a great guest for that. And uh, Mike, good to see you. It's mid July. It's hard to believe. I looked looked at the calendar and I uh, realized that hunting seasons are going to be starting in in some cases about a month or less in some cases and it's almost hard to believe if, if if hunting season started for us in 30 days would you be ready I would be ready um, this has been a pretty easy summer to keep everything up to pace so if we had to start in 30 days I'd be ready to go I think I'm close enough I, I don't have a, a real handle on any particular deer or anything like that, like I'd like to have for a chance at an early season buck. But if it was to just get out there, be be fully prepared to fill any tag, an antlerless tag or whatever, I think if I had 30 days, I could get there. Now, as you know, I've been changing up arrows, so messing around with that a little bit. By the way, we should have someone on the show just to talk arrows sometimes and arrow weights and spine and all that. I think that would be cool. And uh, I may have mentioned that before, but every time I talk about arrows, I think about that. Um, and uh, cameras, yeah, I've been haven't really checked cameras a lot. Been relying on what has been coming in on the wireless cameras, and it hasn't been very much. Matter of fact, I've been getting better bear pictures than I have deer pictures, as you know, as I've been sharing with you. So, uh, how about you on that front? Where are you with those things? I have all my my cameras staged up. I have all the firmware updated for the year, have my batteries. I haven't put them out yet. Um, thinking I'm going to wait a little bit and get them out the second week in August. I just think that last year starting too early put me in a mindset of I was self-defeated just because I wasn't getting a lot of activity and everything kind of picked up mid-August. And so this year, I think I'm just going to wait until mid-August and and stay positive and move forward throughout the season with that positive attitude. You know, you said firmware updates, and it made me wonder, what percentage of people do you think actually update the firmware in their cameras? Um, that is a great question that I can't answer for you. But as you well know, for me, I've had great luck keeping cameras for years, upwards of a, of a decade and having them work very well. And so cleaning the terminals at the end of each year with alcohol and a Q-tip and updating the firmware and storing them in a dry place has served me very well. So it's just part of my routine that I just keep up with. And I, I just don't have the money to throw away and have disposable cameras every year. So when I buy something, I buy it to keep it. And that's, that's what's worked for me. And so I keep doing it. I'm, I'm kind of laughing over here as you're talking, because I'm thinking, I know I have cameras out there that probably have at least two different versions of firmware that should have been updated that haven't been. And then I'm also the guy that I wait until my camera's not working and then realize, oh, maybe I should clean the terminals of the cameras. And so uh, I would not advise that. Uh, I would I would much uh, be more on the, on the page of what the doctor's doing there, keeping up with it, because uh, you know, I will say, I will say, for, and for whatever reason, I don't know why I've changed this practice, but I used to 
bring my cameras in at the end of the seasons and, and spend a little time cleaning them up and having them ready and pull the batteries out of them. For whatever reason, the last couple of years, I've gotten really lazy and I'm sure it's cost me, but uh, that's probably why you immediately said I would absolutely be prepared to go out and hunt in 30 days because you were, <laughs> you were prepared in January, probably. Well, as you well know, I ordered a bow back in February and because of the supply chain issues, it has not yet arrived and supposedly it's supposed to be here in August. So I'm not, I don't believe I'll be ready to use it this year and get the correct arrow set up and get comfortable with it. So I'm going to pull my old bow out of retirement. So it's been around for so long. That's just like an extension of my arm. So I'll be ready to go no matter what. I've been shooting my bow. It's a new, it's a prime Nexus six prime is a sponsor of the NDA and have been for a long time. We appreciate that. And my last few bows have been primes. And so they're not, uh, it's not a real big change to go from, you know, a couple year model back to the next model, but uh, I've really been enjoying shooting it. My biggest thing has been playing around with arrows and getting that figured out. And I think I'm close. Um, but at any rate, yeah, we are, we are really staring down sort of the home stretch before we get into a deer season. And uh, that's the case for just about anybody listening to this. So we're getting close. It's getting exciting. And uh, as I say that, it, I want to give everybody a reminder here, hunting land liability insurance. I'm not sure this is something that everybody thinks about, but I can tell you at the National Deer Association, we have had a longstanding uh, liability insurance policy opportunity for people to take advantage of. It's extremely popular. Like whether you're a landowner or a hunter leases land or a member of a hunting club, uh, hunting insurance is essential because really both parties are assuming some risk while they're on a property. And really landowners have a duty to the guests and those, especially if they're paying to hunt leaseholders, uh, to have some protection there. So here are just a few highlights of our policy if you're not familiar with this. And by the way, you can go to deerassociation.com and very quickly find hunting liability insurance. This is the time of year when people tend to buy that. But really for a little, as little as a few cents an acre, it is really, really inexpensive folks. Uh, you can get a $1 million per occurrence general liability coverage, $2 million general aggregate, no deductible, $100,000 of fire legal liability, member to member coverage, guest liability coverage, liability coverage for firearms, tree stands, ATVs, mobile equipment, basically everything. And so as inexpensive as this is to just have that peace of mind, especially if you're running a big hunt club, have a lot of area, a lot of people on your land, I think it's something worth considering. And I think you'll be really surprised at how inexpensive it is uh, to get that. So go to deerassociation.com and look for hunting liability insurance, check it out. I think you'll be, again, surprised at uh, what a great opportunity it is. So, Mike, we're going to talk to Josh Honeycutt today. Josh is someone I've known for a while now, has been a writer in the outdoor industry for, for a long time, uh, written tons of articles for a lot of people, big-time hunter and storyteller. I really like getting outdoor writers for, for shows like this when we're talking about hunting stories because they, they're, that's the life they live. They are the hunting stories people. And they run into the stories. They talk to the people behind the deer. And Josh is definitely one of those people. He has a real knack for doing stories on big deer, sort of big deer profiles. And so if you're sort of rolling your eyes right now thinking, well, I, you know, we're always talking about big deer. The reason I bring it up is a lot of these stories are about the average person out there who, 
I mean, we're going to hear a story today from Josh where literally a guy had five acres and kills a world-class deer that he didn't even know ever crossed his five acres. And I think that's what makes a lot of these stories fun. Um, so I like getting the writers for stories. Josh is a good one. He's ate up with deer hunting. I mean, he loves deer and we get a little bonus in this show too, because we don't just talk deer stories. We also get some personal tips from Josh. He's a very accomplished hunter from Kentucky. Uh, and so I think you'll walk away from this with more information and the idea that, you know what, anybody really, if you're out there, you have an opportunity to take the deer of a lifetime. And that's why we do this. I mean, it's, been something for years for me that I don't name deer. I don't run them down. Uh, I don't have, I've never had the time to really figure out a deer from soup to nuts. So for me, the story of an individual that owned five acres and was out putting in the time and shot a world-class deer is the drive that keeps me going because that opportunity is always there if you're out there putting in the time and enjoying yourself. And sometimes it might pay off in a memory of a lifetime. As he was telling that particular story, it reminded me when I was a kid, and this was before I was even old enough to hunt yet. I just, I loved the stories and I wanted to get around the table when the, when the hunters would come back in and share what they saw. And I remember this one time, uh, a neighbor, actually it was the husband of one of the neighbors he had shot this deer on the very last day of the Pennsylvania firearm season, this buck. And it was this, it had, it was a non-typical, it had sticker points on. It. And this was well before uh, anybody was seeing deer like this in the state. This would have been back in the eighties. And uh, I just remember being so blown away, sitting there listening to him, he, where he literally said, well, I, I just went out and sat in the woods. It, there was a few hours left in the hunting season. I didn't really have any expectations. And this, all of a sudden here comes this deer. And I don't even remember how many points it had, but uh, you know, it might, it might as well been uh, the, the world record as far as I was concerned with as a wide eyed kid. But I just, those types of stories just really have, I have a soft spot for them. They get me, uh, it keeps me out on stand sometimes. And maybe you've had some of those stories too, Mike, but I, I just, I like those, I think even more than the ones where you've got this sort of almost professional type hunter that's patterned a deer for four years and finally connects on it. So those are the kind of stories I like. And, and everyone has their preference. And I can't say that I have a specific preference because I gain a little something from everybody's story, whether it's somebody that actually did put in the time and really knew a deer inside and out and put in the hours versus someone that just walked out and had that opportunity and capitalized on it because all of those things, if you break them down, there might be something to learn there. And that's what I like about those types of stories. Well, enough from us talking about it. Let's go ahead and bring in our, our guest today, Josh Honeycutt. Josh, good to see you. Appreciate you being a guest here on the Coffee and Deer Show. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Good, good. It's good to see. You. I haven't seen you in person for a while, thanks to the pandemic. I think the last place might have been the ATA show, but it's good to at least have you here on video. I can see. Obviously, our listeners can't. Um, uh, but so, Josh, you're you're an outdoor writer. Your company is Honeycut Creative LLC. You write for a bunch of different places. Uh, I think you have more than fifty different places your works appeared, and maybe it's more than that. Uh, and you also have contributed to the National Deer Association, or formerly QDMA. 
uh, over the years. So we've got that relationship. Uh, and you do a bit of everything. I mean, you you do the, the photography, videography. Uh, you're a big time hunter yourself, which I think is probably the most important thing to get across here. But um, that's a general description. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about you? Yeah, you know, so for the past decade, I've been an outdoor writer, photographer, videographer uh, in the hunting industry. Uh, I branch into the fishing and, and camping, you know, uh, in other outdoor spaces a little bit here and there, but I'm primarily a hunter and and I've been writing for magazines and websites uh, really for the past 10, 12 years. Um, uh, and, you know, I spent today, I spent about half of my time working with traditional media outlets. And as you mentioned, uh, my company is Honeycut Creative LLC. And so I also partner with, uh, you know, basically other brands in the industry, you know, that sell a product or a service. And I help create content marketing plans for their own platforms as well. So uh, about half of my time, you know, I get to work with really good, uh, really good, great companies. Uh, and the other half of my time, I get to work with great publications. So tell me a little bit about your relationship with Realtree. I think you've been with them since 2012, uh, doing a lot of writing for them. And that's where I, I read a lot of your stuff there. So tell us about that. Yes. So I, I've, I've freelanced uh, uh, for Realtree starting in 2012, as you mentioned. Um, you know, since then, I've worked with them in a greater capacity. Uh, you know, I'm, I serve as a as one of the guys on the team. Um, and, you know, we, we create a lot of content. Realtree, you know, is a company that produces a lot of really good content um, that's, you know, directed at the hardcore hunter uh, with a lot of that content being focused on whitetails and, and not only just, you know, whitetails, but DIY whitetails, which is what's most relatable to most folks these days. You know, it's funny you say that because this morning as I was going through just catching up on some of the things you've been doing, uh, I came across the one you just put out there on Realtree, the 13 things public land deer hunters despise you for. And mm -hmm. you sort of, you've written a few pieces like this uh, over the years, which I think they're fun reads, but they're also actually true. And the one, the one that was probably my favorite on your list was the very last one where you talked about hunters embellishing uh, either what they shoot or what they see on public lands, because it seems like we all have run into somebody that saw, you know, saw a booner on some, on public land somewhere. And so that mm -hmm. one really resonated with me. Yeah. They all look like booners when they're running away from you. Yeah. They're a lot easier to measure when they're actually on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I don't know if people were trying to just throw you off their trail and get you off their public lands that, that they like to hunt on or what, but, uh, you know, uh, it wouldn't be, the cra wouldn't be the craziest thing. I, kn I know there's one individual on a, on a piece of property, not far from where I've hunted, you know, he was really trying to throw people off. He was creating these car sized hood scrapes in locations that he wanted to divert people to and away from his spots. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People are funny. They're very protective of, of their deer, if you will. Uh -huh. And even on public land, uh, they have their spots on their public land that they're very protective of. And I, so I do think there is some of this monkey business going on out there where people are trying to uh, manage people as much as they're trying to manage deer in their own hunting. And I just ask myself, why wouldn't you put all that effort into focusing on what you're doing instead of worrying about everybody else? So uh, you know, also I heard, I was listening to a, another podcast here just yesterday and they were, uh, this fellow was talking about, uh, a lot of the land that he hunts, that's not public land. He said, it's actually more pressured than public land. And so he was just mm -hmm. reiterating this idea that there's a lot of really good spaces on public land that people pass up and it's probably less, less pressured than some of the private land that they're borrowing. And you've probably had some of that experience too. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've hunted public land in Kentucky, Kansas, you know, and everywhere in between some in the South, uh, South Carolina. I lived there for a couple of years whenever I was working for the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. So, um, yeah, I've hunted public land in quite a few states. And that's that's been my experience as well. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have permission on a lot of different private properties here at home. And I would say some of those properties that I share permission on get more pressure, receive more pressure than some of the public lands that I've been on, simply because people have this stigma that all public land is overrun. That's simply not true. As long as you're willing to find those pockets that are overlooked, you can definitely find some gems out there and even some unpressured deer on public lands. Yeah, the doctor and I here, we talk about that often. There's there are some state land around us that we hunt and get on. And yeah, we talk about it sometimes just, it's sort of just a math problem. There's so much land area that it's just inevitable that there has to be good deer on it because there's no way people can cover it all. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you've had a lot of that same experience. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, there's different places that you can take advantage of. Some Sometimes it's the small property. Sometimes it's the, the little piece of property that might only be, you know, 30, 40, 50 acres, but it's not marked. Maybe they don't have signs up. Maybe it's not been publicized that well by either the state or federal, depending on, you know, who has that land. Um, you know, there's some properties that I've hunted in the past that were definitely public land. I contacted not only the state D uh, DNR, you know, at their headquarters, but also the local game warden. And they were like, yeah, that is public land, but most people don't know that. So, you know, if, as long as you're willing to do your research, you can find them, you know, whether they're big or small. Um, and sometimes you have to think outside of the box to figure out where those are. Maybe it's an island on a lake. Maybe it's a, a landlocked piece of, of property that you have to walk a long way to get into, uh, you know, you know, because of a, a one little easement that you have access wise. But, uh, you know, it's, it's always it's always fun when you find those because, you know, when you when you do find that little spot on public land that you have all to yourself, so to speak, uh, you know, it, it, it's pretty fun. So, Josh, go ahead and if you could expand upon that. Tell us a story about one of those little sleeper spots that you found in a hunt that you had on it. Yeah, so one of them we've found by accident. Uh, I lease a piece of land um, in Ohio, southern Ohio, um, and it's not a big property. It's about 80 acres. A friend and I lease that, that piece of land, um, and we have for a few years now. And after we leased it, we realized that there was a ton of public land in the area. Um, and so we actually hunt the public as much as we hunt our lease. And, and, and actually there's one little sliver of it that backs up to our lease. And so we can technically hunt from our lease through into the, to the uh, public land. Um, but there's a bunch of different tracks in that area. And some of that, most of that is marked. Most of that property is actually marked, um, with, with, you know, physical signs on the roads. Um, but there are some parts of that that aren't. And so we've had to talk with the local game warden to figure out what's open, what's not open. And there's some little pockets within the greater area there that just don't have the signage. You know, it's hard to, to, to figure out if they are or they aren't on public land, um, you know, based on the maps. But, you know, if you're willing to take that extra time and effort to talk to the authorities that actually oversee that, the game wardens who govern it and monitor those particular properties, they're going to be very willing and open to tell you what is and what isn't open because obviously they're there to stand for the law. So, um, you know, that's one particular instance where we actually stumbled upon it accidentally, um, but it's, it's been great ever since. You know, we've had some fun hunts on there, on those properties. So, Josh, you 
uh, you're a very, very good writer. Uh, I enjoy your work. I can tell that you work hard at it. And you can you can easily see uh, in this day and age where anybody can be a writer, anybody can start a blog, right? You can uh, you can really pick out who's really good at it and knows what they're doing and who's mm -hmm. just uh, trying to put some words on paper and doesn't they don't put the work in. And you put the work in, uh, which is something I've always appreciated about your writing. And so you also seem to be really good at generating ideas and writing about things that are kind of unique that not everybody is going to uh, pick up on or write about. And not that this is unique necessarily, but it seems to me, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you have a fondness for writing these stories about really big deer and the people behind them and the stories behind them. And you've been putting out a pretty good series now at this point, profiling a number of these deer. Uh, you've talked to the hunters themselves. Just tell us a little bit about that and why, why that type of thing excites you so much. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff that I do is how to, where to, uh, related, but you know, the funnest stories to write, in my opinion, are just, you know, good stories. And, and a lot of times those revolve around big deer. Um, and it, it don't always have to be a big deer. It can just be the story of a good hunt, um, you know, because big deer, that, that term is relative. But, um, you know, I, I think you know, I, I generally write 80 to 100 of those each year uh, uh, stories. And, and it's, they're fun. They're really fun to write. Um, you know, it, it's great because it gives recognition to those animals that obviously deserve it uh, or special. Um, and so being able to share those stories and not just the story of the animal itself, but the adventures of the hunters who, who are fortunate to take those animals, it's just really uh, rewarding to help share their story who otherwise might not be able to share their story. They might not have a platform. Um, and helping them, you know, have a voice and, and, and a place to talk about, you know, what they love to do. It's, it's been pretty rewarding for me throughout the years. So feeding along with that line of questioning, Josh, what do you love about writing and what's your least favorite thing about writing? Yeah, some, you know, I love writing because, you know, I love to tell stories and that's one, one place that you can tell a story. You know, there are many ways to do that. Photography, videography, uh, podcasting, as we're doing here, um, you know, writing is another way to do another means of doing that. So telling a story um, is great. I love to, to help people too. Um, I love to help educate um, and so that's where I do a lot of the, the, you know, how to content, where to content that I create. That's, that's where that comes from. I love to help others. Now I don't know it all. And to be honest, a lot of, a, a huge percentage of my writing, you know, isn't based off of my own personal, uh, solely off my own personal experience. It's, you know, bringing in experts in in relative fields, you know, but, uh, you know, being able to tell that story, being able to help others are probably the most, uh, rewarding aspects of it for me. Uh, as far as what I like the least, um, you know, it's, it's hard to answer that question, but I would say sometimes, you know, even though it's a fun job, it can become a job just like any job can. So, uh, some days, you know, whenever I've already written about eight or 10,000 words and I'm starting to get dyslexia of the, of the fingers and dyslexia of the eyes and mouth and everything else. Sometimes I just have to take a break, go outside, sit on the porch and look at the deer out and out in the backfield. Well, you don't sell yourself short on your own prowess and how to's because people can't see this, but I see over your shoulder, some pretty nice deer hanging on the wall. In particular, there's that giant eight pointer there with the long tines. I've seen that deer in other pictures too. Let's, let's step into your world for a second. Tell us a little bit about that deer in particular. 
Yeah, that was a fun, uh, a fun hunt. Um, I, I was fortunate to shoot that deer in 2018. The story for that deer started in 2017 because um, I, I had a stretch where I was very fortunate to shoot a lot of velvet deer, several velvet deer. I think I shot uh, velvet bucks in 2015, uh, almost shot one in 2016, then shot one in 2017 and 2018. Um, and so I shot a velvet deer with a drop time in 2017 and a week later this guy nope that guy i'm trying to point over my shoulder uh in mirror mode here but he uh he showed up for the first time on camera and so he was big then but basically i you know i just tagged out within the first week of season so i spent the rest of that season um just trying to figure this buck out and fortunately he spent the pretty much the entire season on the property at least part of the time on the property because it was a small one it was only 50 acres so obviously his home range extended and you know even core area probably extended beyond the borders of that tract but you know i just did as much i put a lot of trail cameras out and then i just left them alone i didn't check them the rest of the season so i, I basically put a ton of, of cameras on that property just to try to get as much information on this deer as possible um and then did not check them until i went back next march to uh shed hunt and you know leading up that through the the summer of 2018 i uh, did the same thing i put cameras back out didn't check them except for one time uh before deer season uh did a lot of glassing from afar um he was in a bachelor group with two or three other bucks um and so i was able to get a pretty good pattern on him and then he changed right before the season um and basically disappeared from all of my cameras daylight wise he would hit them at night but not during the day and so i did uh you know there's the first day or two of the season i don't think i hunted him uh, if i'm remembering correctly i think i didn't actually start hunting him till the second or third day but i'd have to go back and look at my notes but um Basically, I decided to do a hanging or an observation sit. Turned out he was actually still doing exactly what he'd been doing during the preseason. He was just bypassing my cameras and just really was taking a slightly different trail. So even though I thought that that deer had completely shifted his patterns, he'd really only just shifted them a little bit and was still basically doing the exact same thing. And so after that initial uh, observation sit, which I almost got him on that one, um, I did another hanging hunt, pushed in a little bit closer and was fortunate to get an arrow on that big boy. Yeah, that's awesome. And you have some amazing area that you're hunting there too with between, you said Southern Ohio and Kentucky, Northern Kentucky, and that, that's a great place to shoot a velvet deer, which you've taken advantage of. And it's a, it's a completely different ball game. Haven't done it myself. So, uh, but it's good stuff. And it's, uh, I always feel like there's two times that are easier to, to pattern deer. And that is either really early season, like you get the opportunity there or late in the winter. And, uh, we don't have that in all States and you've hunted many States and you know that. So you're, you're in a great spot there for the work that you do and, uh, being, uh, enjoying chasing mature deer. Mm -hmm. Very fortunate. Very fortunate. So let me get back to the writing part of it again and, and sticking to big deer. Um, I have a particular fondness for the stories where people say, I didn't know that deer was there. Mm -hmm. um, and then they, they end up shooting this world-class animal. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the Beatty buck comes to mind. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Mike Beatty was after a big eight pointer and ends up shooting that 300 plus monster in Ohio. Right. Mm -hmm. So do you have any of those that stand out to you where you're talking to these folks doing these interviews and you're thinking, man, this is truly like just an average Joe. And he just basically hit the lottery. 
Yeah. So one particular story that comes to mind recently um, that I've, I've written within the past few months, past six months, is one that I did for Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. And this individual, he basically shot a giant deer on seven acres. Uh, it was seven acres that he owned and lived on. His house was on the front end of that next to the road. And then he had about, you know, an acre of yard and five or six acres of, of habitat that he hunted behind it and shot this giant whitetail, uh, Kentucky whitetail. And, you know, it, 200, over 200 inches, um, you know, and, and he, he, he knew that the deer heard rumors and, and uh, that the deer was in the area, but it wasn't a deer that he was actually actively hunting um, simply because, you know, if the deer was alive and was real, you know, he only had about five or six acres to hunt on. So he wasn't holding out hopes of, of, of you know, targeting that deer. So, but he ended up getting it, you know, and it was on the same day or maybe the day after, uh, his son or grandson, you know, got a big deer off that five acres as well. So it's a, it's a pretty cool story. And it just goes to show you don't have to have, um, you know, a, a large number of, of, of acres to be successful, even on big deer, you know, and while, uh, I nor any of my close relatives have, have shot a 200 plus incher. Um, I was fortunate to be in the stand with my uncle a few years ago. Uh, a matter of fact, I think it was 2018. Um, and he shot a, a great, you know, five and a half year old deer on 10 acres that we had set up specifically for, uh, you know, what happened. So you don't have to have, you know, a hundred, 200,000 acres to be successful on mature whitetails. Do you think, uh, as you think back to some of these stories you've written, do you think more of the stories are come from the people who were aware of the deer, patterned the deer, worked on it, tried tried to get after them for several years, or are they more so uh, people just either happened into them or maybe were aware of the deer but weren't particular, uh, particularly hunting it? How would you say that balances out? Yeah, whenever I first started writing these stories, you know, back around, you know, 2010-ish, uh, I would say it was probably half and half. People were most, you know, probably half of the people were aware of the deer, half of them weren't. Today, just with the prominence uh, of, of trail cameras, if I had, you know, went through, I would have to go back through and look to be sure. But uh, just off the cuff, I would say that the vast majority knew of the deer, you know, knew of its presence, um, probably had a trail camera photo of it. Uh, and if they didn't, somebody else did and it showed it to them. So I would say today, just because of the, the just how widespread the use of trail cameras are, that based on my anecdotal experience, probably most of the time they're, they're aware. So Josh, go ahead and tell us how you reach out to these individuals. How do you find them and how responsive are they to your at least request to write about their deer story? Yeah. You know, there's many different ways that, that we use to, to contact these individuals, you know, social media, generally when a deer is, is, is killed, somebody is putting it on social media. Um, so that's a great way that I, I, I basically, find these deer and, and then get in contact with these individuals. Um, sometimes it's word of mouth. Sometimes somebody calls me up and says, Hey, did you hear about, th about this one or hear about that one? Uh, but most of the time it's social media. Now, uh, oftentimes I would say most times, 
probably 60, 70% of the time, whenever I reach out to someone, they are, you know, you know, interested in, in doing a story. I would say probably 30, 40% of the time people don't want to, because they either don't want the publicity for the particular area that they're in, um, or, or they have some other reason, but yeah, yeah, I'd say social media is the, is the biggest way that I find these. You know, it's, it's interesting as you, you talk about nowadays, there are so many people out there with cameras and the maps and, and the, and the scouting. And if, if you're listening, if you're a serious hunter at all and listening to podcasts, you get all these tips about going out and finding deer. And so it really is hard for deer to slip through the cracks um, nowadays for the, that nobody knew about them. And I will say there is one place that I hunt where that does happen. I hunt in Delaware uh, in the Great Cypress Swamp. And that swamp is just so vast and so nasty that the buck I shot last year, actually, I had, I knew there was a big deer in the area, but I had no idea of that particular deer. And we even run cameras, but that, that is truly few and far between the doctor and I hunt a couple places together and we almost know the deer too well. And it messes up our hunting and, and causes us to uh, probably make mistakes and overthink things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you prefer as a hunter? Do you like, uh, Let's put it this way. Do you like the chess game, the cat and mouse game where you just know a ton about the deer and you're trying to get on them? Or do you like the mystery of like, you might know there's a big deer in the area, but you know, you just don't know when he might show up. Yeah. Uh, both, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I hunt Kentucky and Ohio. So Kentucky, I, I focus, you know, very heavily during the early season because I spent, you know, so I'm at home. So I have, I'm, I'm able to spend a lot of times or a lot of time patterning these deer throughout the summer. So I hunt a lot in Kentucky during the early season. Likewise, I like hunting Ohio a, a lot during the late season because there's less pressure then and the deer are patternable again. Uh, but I spend the rut elsewhere generally. Uh, I, I haven't as much, you know, this past year because of uh, some of the travel restrictions, but, um, you know, I, I love both aspect, aspects. So I love hunting deer that I know about. I love hunting deer that I don't um, because, you know, I, I do think trail cameras have you know, while I, I would I would not give my trail cameras away unless you're like Arizona and they're taking them away from you, um, you know, with their recent trail cam ban. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't willingly uh, without a, a trail camera ban give away my trail cameras or quit using them because they are a very beneficial scouting tool. But, um, you know, they have taken some of the mystery out of deer hunting uh, and, and there is some loss there. Whenever, uh, you know, you think back to the days before trail cameras and you didn't have those, you didn't know what deer were on the landscape. You were just super excited to see that 120 inch eight pointer run across the field. You didn't know about that 170 inch deer that spends its time on the back 40 because you don't have any trail cameras out. But hey, you know, so there's there's pros and cons. But, you know, I love both. I love hunting in, in areas where I don't use trail cameras. I've done a lot of that in Indiana. Uh, I've never put a trail camera out in Indiana, but I've done some hunting up there and on public land where I've never uh, put a trail camera out. So I, I like both aspects and, and same way within Kansas. You know, I've hunted in Kansas on public land, never put a trail camera out. Uh, I like both aspects and, and, and basically practice both ends of that spectrum. So let's back up a little bit here. You've heard Nick say that he and I do spend a lot of time together hunting and trying to strategize. What is josh honeycutt's hunting circle like are you a solo hunter do you have one or two hunting buddies or do you prefer hunting camp where everyone kind of comes together and you enjoy that or is there some combination thereof 
Yeah, I, I think I'm a little bit of a mix. Um, you know, I enjoy hunting uh, on my own just because it's where I find solitude, uh, where, I, you know, one of the places where I can find peace. But, uh, you know, I do love hunting with other people, too. You know, that's that's part of the experience. So, um, you know, I have a couple of friends, close friends that I hunt with. Um, and I also have, you know, I'm fortunate to have family that I hunt with as well. But uh, hunting on your own isn't necessarily a bad thing either. But I, I, I'm, a, I'm pretty much a healthy mix of all the above. I like that. Yeah. I can just, just when you ask Josh about hunting, like he just starts ripping it off, right? He, you can tell that he's a big time hunter. He loves it all just like we all do. And I think that also certainly comes through in your writing. Uh, real quick. I want to ask you one more thing about cameras because here uh, it is this time of year is when we're recording here. I don't usually put my cameras out until around that first week of July, around the July four holiday. Um, and I posted something on my own Instagram about that. And someone said, why not put cameras out all year long? And I said, well, I don't, yeah, I'd need a second job to pay for the batteries and all that <laughs> stuff. So, um, how about you? How, how, when do you put cameras out? Do you leave them out all the time? What's your strategy there? Yeah. So I normally, uh, I'm about a month late this year, but generally I put mine out the first week of June, first couple weeks of June. Um, you know, and that's just my personal preference, what I've done throughout the past. But, uh, you know, I like to put them up around midsummer, early, early to midsummer. That way I can leave them alone, kind of leave them unpressured. Cause when I use my trail cameras, um, you know, I put them up usually first week of June, second week of June, and then I will not check those cameras at all until, probably around, you know, a week to two weeks before the opening day. Um, and then, you know, I might check a few of them again before opening day, but most of the time I'm just using that one initial camera check to figure out where I'm going to spend the next week to two weeks glassing from afar and drilling down that way because trail cameras are great, um, but they don't tell you the whole story. So I just basically use trail cameras to get me in the vicinity that I need to be in. And then I basically take, bring it home or take it the rest of the way uh, within the field scouting from afar, if possible. Some places that I hunt doesn't allow that just because of the terrain. Um, but usually that's, that's my, uh, my, my procedure, my, my way of doing things. Are you able to use wireless uh, cellular cameras at all? Yeah, Kentucky allows you to do so. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of debate on on wireless cameras uh, as far as, you know, ethics and things like that. Um, but but yeah, there's, you know, fortunately, Kentucky still allows you to do so. Um, I'm not as big into those, you know, the use of wireless cameras as a lot of people are, um, simply because I run so many cameras. I run about uh, 40, 45 cameras, which that's nothing compared to a lot of people. And, uh, but, uh, you know, Again, like I said, if you if, if, if I don't run cameras year round, generally I run them from Ju June, July up to around March, up to the shed, uh, the antler drop. But whenever I go in and, and uh, you know look for sheds, but uh, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of different things. I think people sometimes put too much emphasis on trail cameras. Trail cameras are great; they're very beneficial, but sometimes they will you know, not tell the whole story like this, the eight pointer that we were talking about, you know, if I would have solely relied on trail cameras to, to figure out what that deer was doing, I never would have killed him because I would have thought that deer had either went, you know, nocturnal had shifted his core area to another area because he was only hitting cameras from, you know, one o'clock to five o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, that, that week to two weeks leading up to opening day. So if I would have just relied on trail cameras, I never would have killed that deer. I never would have even hunted him because I would have thought he wasn't huntable. 
at that point. But uh, yeah, so definitely use trail cameras. I think they're extremely beneficial. Definitely really good for trying to pattern an early season deer, especially not as effective in my opinion during the rut. Um, but uh, for sure, a great tool for the early and late seasons. And then, you know, use that to get, to get part of the way. And then afterward, you know, do some in the field boots on the ground scouting, especially from afar, that's low impact uh, to, 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 you know, close in. So, You've talked about your trail cameras and how that helps you with your scouting in most situations. What are you looking most forward to this coming hunting season, or do you have a specific deer that is on your radar already? Yeah, so I've I'm fortunate. the 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 most history I've ever had with a whitetail was five years uh, deer that I followed. Uh, back in the early, uh, I think I first started following that deer from 2010 all the way up to around 2014 or 15. But uh, anyway, you know, there's there's one particular deer that I know is or think is still alive that I've got four years of history with. And if he's back this year, it'll be five years. Um, just a really cool mainframe eight that's got a bunch of extra stuff on him on his rack. But he's, he's a deer that I've glassed, you know, and seen in person numerous times. I actually got a shot at this deer in 2019. Uh, it was non-lethal. Uh, he, he, he was, he was just fine. It was, it was merely a flesh wound, a high hit. Um, he, he jumped the string on me, but, uh, you know, that's a deer that I hope is back. If he's back, you know, I always say I'm never going to hit hunt one particular deer, but every now and then once every two or three or four seasons, it, it happens and I do it. So if he ends up showing back up this year, I might have to have to pull the trigger on that. Yeah. Those type of opportunities are few and far between. Um, that, that's the biggest thing, frankly, I miss about Ohio. And when I lived there for six years is I had a deer there that I had five years experience with. And I'm like you, you had, it becomes like this relationship and you, you do sort of pressure yourself to say, I'm not even going to think about another deer except this one. But in my particular case, I only ever laid eyes on the deer twice in all that mm -hmm. five years. A lot of it was camera data. Um, so it's, it's tough whenever you've got a lot of other nice deer running around to lay off of those. So it's always sort of that uh, dilemma. So uh, aside from that particular deer, do you have any hunts planned for this fall out of state? Yeah. So this year, um, you know, every, every year I hunt Kentucky and Ohio, um, every year. And then generally, uh, you know, normally I hunt four States each fall, each season. Um, I'll hunt Kentucky, Ohio, and then one or two other States. Now I didn't do that last year. Um, but, uh, I, my plan for this fall is to hunt Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. I do have a young child, uh, my daughter, she's just about uh, 10 and a half months now. So, um, you know, until she gets just a little bit older, I'm not going to venture too far from home. I'm going to hunt kind of Kentucky and some of the surrounding States, you know, that's within driving distance. That way I can get back quickly if I have to. Um, but this fall, my plan is to hunt Kentucky, Ohio, um, hunt home, private land here at home in Kentucky and then hunt a mix of private and public land in Ohio and then public land only in Indiana. And that Indiana piece is a pretty special spot. Um, you know, I've not actually hunted it yet. I found a new piece that I've scouted only. I haven't hunted it, but it's very interesting. It's swamp ground. Um, it's, it's about 1,500, 2,000 acres that is completely waterlocked. 
you cannot get inside get into it without a boat which is very interesting uh low pressure i've talked to the to the uh land manager who manages that property said it's virtually void of deer hunters um pretty much only trappers so it, I, i'll report back and let you know what i find out about it this fall feel free to send a map too we'll you know get yeah. that posted up on social media for i'll you. Dr- I'll drop you a I'll drop you a pin, but it it won't be to there. <laughs> love it, well, love it. Well, the one thing that I find amusing is if um, you ever see Josh's Instagram. I was kind of going through it yesterday, and I love your location selections: the woods, the deep woods, Nunya business. I mean, yeah. that is just comical. I found I found that to be hilarious. So. Um, yeah. Nick, I think your pin might have some kind of a Josh sarcastic spin on it at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah oh, my, father probably... in law, my father-in-law always said, you don't have to tell everything you know. <laughs> yeah, it'll probably have profanity with it or something like that. But, you know, I would deserve it. So, Josh, I have one more question for you, for me. And this could, you could take it either way you want to go, whether it be writing or media or hunting. But if you could give two tips to an aspiring writer or, an, or a new hunter that you wish that you were given when you first started in your career, what would that be? Yeah. Um, well, I'll do two quick tips, one for each. On the hunting side is, there, I, I hear too often that people are getting upset. They quit hunting because they can't hunt as big a deer as somebody else. Well, let me break it down for you everybody it doesn't matter who you are there's somebody else hunting and killing bigger deer than you unless you're that top 0.01 percent which none of us are um you know so you got to figure out how to be happy you got to figure out how to take yourself out of the big picture there and stop comparing yourself to other people and that's something that i did early on whenever i was a, a kid whenever i was a teenager and young adult is i was seeing all these big deer being killed and, and i was like i'm never going to kill one of these well if you do the comparative thing and you're constantly comparing yourself to other hunters you'll never enjoy hunting because you know hunting is not a competition it's not meant to be a competition if you try to make it one you're never going to be able to enjoy the true meaning of it so you have to take whatever situation that you find yourself in appreciate it, be thankful for it. Uh, thank God for it. And, and, and basically just, you know, do what you love, which is we all love to hunt. And then the other side of that with the writing side is definitely find mentors. Um, and that goes for anything you're aspiring to do, whether it's riding, hunting, you know, uh, you know, playing horseshoes, whatever it is, find a mentor, um, you know, a good way to do that on the media side is to join all the professional outdoor uh, uh, media associations in uh, America, uh, Southeastern Outdoor Press Association, the Professional Outdoor Media Association. Uh, there's others, OWAA, AGLO. There's probably five, six, seven, eight different ones that are really, really good for helping young or aspiring. You don't necessarily have to be young, uh, aspiring outdoor media professionals. Um, there's plenty of people in these organizations that are willing to help you out, point you in the right direction, correct your mistakes, help you to do it the right way. Um, but networking is huge and these uh, organizations allow you to do that. So for you, the listener out there, I want you to back this up about two minutes and listen to Josh's first part of his answer. Those are words to live by. You are only out there for yourself and to enjoy it and to try and measure up to somebody else is going to lead you down a path that is not going to be very much fun. So Josh, I, I really appreciate that answer. 
Yeah, thank you. And, you know, the big thing is the, the first and foremost reason that we hunt whitetails is for food. My freezer stays full. Uh, well, it stays full until, you know, you know, through a certain point and then it gets kind of depleted each year and I have to replenish, uh, uh, you know, our, our, our stockpile of venison. But, you know, we love wild game. I love to eat deer, turkey. I just I love venison so much. I went and hunted access deer back in May about a month ago uh, just to just to put more in the freezer. But, you know, that's the number one reason that we hunt is for food. Uh, you know, so there's many reasons, adventure, family, friends, you know, you know, the chess match, you know, hunting the big deer, as we've talked about, there's many different reasons that you hunt, but the primary reason that we should hunt is for food. Um, uh, and if you can't hunt food for food for yourself, you're hunting and providing for others. So, uh, especially if, you know, if you have, uh, you know, the, the, the disease that prevents you from, uh, you know, alpha gal, if you can't hunt or can't, excuse me, can't eat red meat, you know, I know there's a lot of diehard hunters out there who cannot eat red meat anymore because of that, but they still love the idea of good, healthy venison that's, you know, you're, you're, that you're providing, if not for yourself, for others. So, um, you know, there are many reasons to, to hunt for sure, um, but don't let big deer and especially big deer that other people are killing get in the way of your enjoyment being outdoors. Well said. And, and Josh, you probably have 10,000 words that you need to write today. So we want to be cognizant of your time. And I, I'll ask, uh, close with this. Where can people find you? Tell us where they can find you on social media and whatnot. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, um, you know, uh, Josh underscore Honeycutt um, uh, is, is my handle for, for uh, Instagram. You can find me there, Facebook, reach out wherever. Um, you know, if you're interested in what I do uh, from a professional standpoint, you can find me in all the major uh, magazines and websites. Um, you know, if you're a business out there who is looking to create content for your, for your platforms, you can find me on honeycutcreative.com and reach out to me there. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I thank you guys for having me on. It's, it's been a blast and an honor. Yeah, it's been an honor for us to have you here. Thank you for your time and, uh, looking forward to seeing you in person again sometime soon. Absolutely. Hopefully at, uh, ATA, if not sooner. I really enjoyed that, Mike. Uh, Josh, as I said, is a good, he's a good storyteller, but I, from start to finish, it was from the tips and his own. Uh, information that he provided, I thought were great. Just a little insight into being an outdoor writer and for a lot of uh, different, he's written for a lot of different publications and a lot of online stuff. I think he's going to pick up a lot of fans after people listening to this to follow his stuff. But uh, what really stood out to you? Well, for me, and you know how I am in, in regards to hunting, I want it to be something that anybody and everybody can access and enjoy. And what I like and the, the statement that meant the most to me was him talking about how you should set your own goals and not try and live up to somebody else's expectations because you're going out and doing it. You're investing the time, the money, the effort, and you should define your own goals. You shouldn't let somebody else define your goals for you. And that to me, it, that hits a soft spot for me. That's something I've always pushed people to really strive for because to this this endeavor that we put so much time and effort into needs to give you the returns. And if you're out there miserable because you're not producing like somebody else is on TV or down the street or otherwise, you're not enjoying it. And the whole point of hunting and being outdoors and recreating is enjoying it. Absolutely. We can't really say it any better than that. So Mike, as you're sitting here, 
looking at the calendar, we talked a little bit about this in the beginning. Uh, I know you're a preparation guy. Where's your mind right now? What do you, what do you think? And what is the doctor's prescription for where you should be in mid July? Oh, don't, don't go there. My mind is a scary place. Um, <laughs> but to be honest with you, um, my mind is at going in and I'm doing some clearing work in my sanctuary to be ready for tree planting next spring. That's, that's really what's on my mind. And that's what I have to do here over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to compromise my sanctuary, but the compromise now is going to hopefully return my investment decades down the road. I just have some old pine trees there. The tops are down. It's just a, a, a tangled mess, but it doesn't have a fluid motion, um, like motion to it. There's a lot of dead ends and a lot of places that deer wouldn't feel comfortable getting into. And those need to be rectified and then give me space to plant new trees. So I'm bringing up that next generation of good sanctuary cover. So that's where my mind's at. And that's a priority for me moving into the season because stand placement and locating my deer and, and knowing where I want to be is going to wait another two, three or four weeks. It's interesting to hear you say that following your statement about do what you enjoy and sort of be yourself out there and don't live up to expectations. Um, if you know, a lot of people that manage land, will talk about the management aspect of the land even more than they will the hunt itself. And so I think that was an example there for you. You know, some people are probably listening and they're saying, well, I'm getting ready to put broadheads on and tune broadheads and I'm shooting my gun. And, um, but it's not that for everybody. And I think that's why what you said was so important. That is that you have to, you enjoy the parts you enjoy and don't you set your expectations based on what anyone else is doing. And I think that's outstanding. I mean, I, I took a ran, run out to my place yesterday because I had sprayed cut and sprayed food plot areas and lo and behold, I, I cut and spray them. And then 24 hours later, we got just a deluge of rain. And matter of fact, up until yesterday, it hadn't quit raining. And we're talking these big gushers. So I was really concerned that even though I had applied it well before sort of the rain window, the recommended window, I was concerned it wasn't going to take. And so I did go out there and check it out and it did take. So that was a little bit of a sigh of relief. So that's good to know that the grass is dying and I'll be able to prepare for planting here in a few weeks. But while I was out there, I did pull uh, a few trail camera cards uh, since I was there. So I'm anxious to take a look at those and see these are the ones that I that, that my property does not have cell service everywhere, just sort of a few select places. So I have to pull cards on, on some of these spots. So I'm anxious to see what's on there. And then the other thing for me, Mike, is still, no matter how much I try to be prepared months in advance, I'm still buying gear. I picked up uh, some First Light. First Light, another great sponsor for uh, the National Deer Association, um, a vest. I like hunting in a vest. I'm not, as you know, our season, I think for most people, um, it's, it's really warm for most of it, but you sort of have these cool mornings. And I've always liked having a vest over like a lighter long sleeve shirt because I like that freedom of movement with my arms and it's just really comfortable. So I picked up a vest from first light, uh, first light, by the way, if you buy anything from first light, I don't mean to keep hitting you with sponsors here, but this is, this is important, especially since this show comes from the national deer association. Uh, if you buy the specter pattern, that's part of the camo for conservation where first light is going to send a portion of those proceeds back to the NDA. So anyway, needless to say, I got a first light uh, vest in 
in specter pattern. So I'm looking forward to that coming in. So I'm still tinkering in that part of the part of my game. And to, to be honest with you, it's, it's okay. I think everybody out there needs to understand that the most important thing is, is the, the enjoyment of it. The second most important thing, actually, maybe I should flip flop these, but the first most important thing would be the deer or the game that you're pursuing. And the second thing should be your enjoyment. And so just as long as whatever mode of harvesting deer you're actually looking at, just as long as you're being proficient, you've practiced and you're going to humanely and ethically dispatch your target animal, enjoy it, go have fun. And whatever pace you're at or place you're at, don't compare it to where we are, compare it to where you need to be to be effective and enjoy yourself. And being where you need to be, I, I, I got to tell you, we'll, we'll have Ron on the show, but Ron Hawes, a uh, good friend who I hunt with in Delaware, he and I were actually chatting this morning and they have an August, I think it's an August 10th early deer damage doe season. And so in my mind, I was kind of tinkering with, well, maybe I'll go again. But last year is when I got attacked by chiggers. <laughs> I was out there. And that's a, that's a whole other show. I saw a, a meme going around the other day that it showed why chiggers are actually worse than great white sharks. And as a person that has experienced it, I, I, uh, I have to agree with that. Anybody listening, if you've ever had to battle a chigger attack, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So anyway, I was, I was lightly kicking around the idea of going out there to try to fill an antlerless tag, which is part of why I said, Hey, could you be ready in 30 days? Because that's kind of where we're at here. And this will maybe put it in perspective for people. The next time you hear this show, our next show, Mike, since we air every two weeks will be in August. Yes. And so there you have it. We'll have deer season 365 next week coming up from the NDA and then coffee and deer the week after that, it will be August. So there, that'll maybe shake, uh, rattle some cages and get, get people woke up if they're not already. So with that, just a reminder, folks, if you're not already, please consider subscribing to the show. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora and Stitcher to name a few. Or you can go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast. You can subscribe from there to this show or to Deer Season 365. We also have a, a cool show on there. It's How to Hunt Deer. Even if you think you know everything there is to know about hunting deer, that's worth a listen as well or pass it on to some new hunters. Uh, leave us a rating when you're there. That really helps. Uh, it'll help uh, the show climb the charts and be visible to more listeners. Also, for more information about the National Deer Association, please visit our website at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can become a member and sign up for our free newsletter. That comes out every Thursday. Uh, and you can enjoy our endless content on all matters related to wild deer conservation, habitat hunting, and conservation policy. You can also buy your hunt club insurance there too, which we talked about earlier. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. ton of content up there right now this time of year, so check that out. Folks, we want to thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer.